1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. This is Peter speaking. Uh, now, wise, aged, aged and seasoned apostle Peter, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Peter says this, For you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this powerful verse and all that it means for billions and billions throughout history today and in the future until the return of our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, last Sunday was the State of the Church Address, and I shared with you some of the ministries here at First Baptist Church. Now, I can never share all of them. There's just not enough time, but I try to get in the highlights, and I look forward to the State of the Church every year, and I also dread it because I always forget something that I really needed to say. And then after the service is over, when it's too late, people come and remind me of what I forgot to say. So there are two things I need to share with you very quickly that I forgot last week I intended to share, and they are important. The first is, I've had people ask me over the last month or so, did we ever close on the new property? And the answer is yes. There is a property back here. If you go down Walnut Creek Street, there is one house, excuse me, one lot that does not have a house on it. And all the lots around us, they all have a house except that one lot. And we were able to secure that for our future renovation or rebuilding that I told you over here, a sanctuary for 1500. The parking lot will be behind it and we need a way uh, to get out from the front and the side over there. And we are able to secure that lot. And for the first time in the history of our church that we bought something, we were able to pay cash for it. We didn't have to take out a bank loan for that. So praise God for that. And then secondly, and even more importantly, many years ago, we started a church, founded a church in the Philippines. It's called First Faith Baptist Church in a, in a development in Iloilo. That's the province where Cherry is from, where she grew up and was born, and Miss Flora as well. And uh, there's a, a, an area there called Sook, and it's First Faith Baptist Church. Sook, they watch, or some of the other members watch every Sunday, every week, and they are a sister church. We fund them every month and have for years, and it's an important ministry. I want you to be praying for First Faith Baptist Church. I didn't mention our Philippine mission trip last week, but I neglected to mention them specifically. Pastor June is the founding pastor there. He's there to this day doing a great job. People are getting saved. They're hearing the gospel, and God is being glorified in that church. It's a bamboo structure with a metal roof, and I don't know if you, you've been in a tropical environment with a metal roof or not, but it's uh, similar to sticking your head in your oven. It is, the sun comes down and it heats up that metal roof. And, and so be praying for them. They don't own that property. They rent it. Uh, but God it has a thriving ministry there. So if you're watching First Faith Baptist Church, thank you for your ministry there in the Philippines. On the other side of the world, we have not forgotten you. With that, uh, today, our message is entitled, The Most Misunderstood Words in the Bible. Now, there are many contenders for this. There's a lot of misunderstanding of the Bible, but I would say these are among the most misunderstood words in the Bible. You may have caught it in the verse. I highlighted it for you. Born again, one of the world's most famous terms, although usually we say born again Christian, 
not just born again. I'm a born again Christian, which is, of course, redundant. A Christian is a follower of Christ who's been born again. So a born again means Christian. Christian means Christian. So when we say born again Christian, we're really saying Christian, Christian. Uh, it's an interesting development. Now, for centuries, they were just called Christians, uh, and that developed into the Roman Catholic Church. And then during the Protestant Reformation, um, Protestants and then later evangelicals wanted to be distinguished from Roman Catholics who called themselves Christians. And so the Protestants and the evangelicals called themselves born-again Christians. Uh, which uh, to, to distinguish them from Roman Catholics, which I would think is probably insulting to Roman Catholics, but that's where we get that redundant term, born-again Christian. But the word born-again, uh, like the word Christian, is right out of the Bible, and so we're going to look at that today. Born-again is a biblical term, but it's actually only used on two occasions in Scripture. The first is where the term itself was coined by Jesus himself in John chapter 3 when he sat down and had a conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He said something that nobody had ever heard before. Nicodemus, as a Pharisee and an expert in theology, had never heard the term either. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It confused Nicodemus, and he said, what are you, what are you talking about? I can't, can't go back to my mom. She's old. And uh, Jesus said, no, 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 you have to be born again physically, but you have to be born, you have to be born physically, but you have to be born spiritually as well. And that's what you like. Born of the water and born of the spirit, you have to be spiritually born again, a rebirth. And so Christianity is not just a footnote, it's just not, a, not just an addendum to our life, it is a rebirth. It is a radical transformation of our identity of who we are and our place in this universe. The other place that we see born again, the only other place in all the New Testament and all the Bible is found in 1 Peter, the verse that I read to you this morning. Peter, again, wise old Peter at this point, he no doubt is thinking back years in the past and he remembers that beautiful term and he makes it, uh, it, makes it into this verse, for you've been born again. Not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living, enduring word of God. A reminder to you and I that our life is not the same. We've been reborn. I sometimes wonder, because I watch movies as you do, and one of the favorite themes of Hollywood is going back in time. If I could go back in time, if I woke up tomorrow as a senior in high school, what would I do differently? I like to think about that because I can't. <laughs> I can't go back in time. You know, the idea, oh, we just memorize a bunch of lottery numbers and go back in time and woohoo. Um, or what would we say different or do differently or uh, what friends would we have and what decisions would we make differently than what we make right now? We can't be born again in that sense. We can't go back in time but here today, you can have new life, a new birth. You can be born again. Are you born again? No doubt many would answer that question as a resounding yes. But others might not be so sure. So the real question I want to explore this morning is, how do you know you've been born again? 
Well, the Bible tells us if you've been born again, there are certain things that will happen as absolute certainty. And if these things have not happened in your life, you haven't been born again. It's just that simple. The Bible says, if you do this, you've been born again. If not, then you haven't. Or if you're a believer, if not, you're not. So I want to give you four simple characteristics of every born-again Christian or born-again believer today. The first is this. If you're born again, you will submit to Jesus Christ. If you're born again, you will submit to Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, this is... The, the final words of Jesus, as he's ascending into heaven, his disciples are there, he's ascending into heaven, and he shares these last words with him. It's what we call the Great Commission. And in it, he says in verse 19, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and, listen to this, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I said it, by the way, if you're a born-again believer, you will submit to Jesus Christ. I use the S word, and I know we live in a society that doesn't like that word, submit. We don't like it. Most of the times that it's mentioned in the New Testament, and it's not mentioned a lot, but usually when it's mentioned, in the New Testament, it's from reference to wives submitting to their husbands and to believers submitting to the government. And we don't care for either one of those. <laughs> submitting to your husband sounds old-fashioned and repressive, and submitting to your government is even worse. In fact, we have a strong anti-government attitude in our culture and in our homes. We complain about our government resist our government and resent our government most of the time. In our mind, they're the bad guy, which is why we don't want to submit to them. Why would you submit to the bad guy? Uh, so we just overrule scripture and ignore it. Even though the Bible tells us to submit, point blank, tells us and uses that word, submit to your government. And that was an evil, wicked government, even worse than ours, if you can imagine that. And yet he says, submit to your government. It doesn't mean you agree with your government. It doesn't mean you're a slave to the whims of your government. We live in a democratic republic, and so it is our responsibility to vote. So I, I encourage you, biblically, God, I think, would say, because we are in such a society, we should vote our convictions. Absolutely, there should be godly people in government. But in the end, God would still tell us to submit. By the way, do you know why Paul... Listen, Paul had tremendous influence and power. All the new Christians, this, this movement that would change history all over Europe and all over the world, and Paul, they would have listened to whatever Paul had to say. If he said, overthrow the government, they would have overthrown the government. They would have been ready any day. But Paul doesn't do that. Even though Paul, I assure you, had strong political opinions he didn't talk about it hardly ever because he was not an ambassador of the government. He was an ambassador for, ambassador for Jesus Christ. And it was Christ's love that compelled him, not the love of the government that compelled him. 
And Paul didn't want anybody to get the wrong message from him. He stayed focused on what he was here for. You and I, if we're born again, we are ambassadors of Christ. And we're to submit to Christ and what Christ wants us to do in our life. So we complain. The problem with that thinking is the Bible itself, because it tells us to submit to our husbands and wives. You should submit to your husband. And wives, you're sitting there maybe thinking, well, you don't know my husband, pastor. Well, chances are I do know your husband, and I understand why you think that. (laughs) But the Bible tells you to submit to your husband in his leadership anyway. Now, husbands, I encourage you, of course, to be worth submitting to. Fellow citizens, you should submit to your government. That is to say, you should recognize their authority, knowing God in his sovereignty allowed them to be over you. And while you aren't required to be thrilled about that or about them, you are biblically expected not to whine and complain incessantly as if they have somehow slipped by God and gained power while he was on vacation. Well, God hasn't gone on vacation and nobody slips by God. So vote your convictions, then stop whining as though God isn't in control and submit if he tells you to do that. And listen, submitting in the Bible is not easy. Sometimes it is. Things you were going to do anyway, but sometimes submitting to the teachings of Christ is extraordinarily difficult. Jesus didn't say to the disciples to go out. and, In fact, if you look at the verse, he says, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. He doesn't say teach them to obey many of the commands or some of the commands. He says, teach them to obey everything everything I have commanded you. And that's what God expects his believers to do. And if you're sitting there today thinking, nah, I like Jesus as my savior, but Lord, that's more difficult. But we are to submit. That means we do what he tells us to do. And sometimes you'll fail, but at least God calls us to try our best in the great commission that I read to you. Jesus said, obey everything. In Romans 10, 9, that famous passage of salvation that says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You do this and you do this, you'll be saved. If you don't do this and you don't do this, you're not saved. Now, there's no act on our part. It is the mercy of God through the blood of Jesus Christ that saves us. But we have to surrender to Jesus Christ. And that's in the first, then the second step is you have to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you're sitting out there right now thinking, nah, I think he died on the cross. Uh, I don't think he came back. Sorry, you're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian. You have to accept in faith in the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's what we believe as Christians. That's what Christianity is. The only other step, the first step says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not just Savior, he could have put in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Savior, that would have been beautiful. That's not what he put. And he didn't put that for a reason. He put Lord because we have to submit to him as Lord. Lord means he's the boss. And the boss is the guy that you obey. If you go to work and you go up to your boss, I dare you tomorrow, don't do it. 
But I dare you tomorrow go up to your boss and say, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. I just want you to know that. He'll say, well, thank you for your honesty. You're fired. Because if he's the boss, you're going to obey him. And if you don't obey him, he's not going to be your boss for very long. And so that's what lordship means. If you confess Jesus as Lord, it means whatever you tell me to do, Jesus, to the best of my ability, I'm going to do that. That's lordship. Not easy, but that's what Christians do. So first, to be born again means to submit to Jesus Christ. Second, to be born again means you have the Holy Spirit in you, in your life. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, that beautiful letter Paul wrote to the church in Rome and the deep theology, and we really get into it in chapter 8. What an amazing chapter. Paul says this, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, <coughs> and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Now you notice he mentions the Trinity in that single verse. He talks about the Holy Spirit here. He mentions, uh, describes it as the Spirit of God, which we typically mean the, the God the Father. And then you see the Spirit of Christ. Did you know the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of Christ or called the Spirit of Christ as well? That's because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one. There are three distinct beings, but they are one God, one being and one God. Always say like our, you are body, mind, and soul. So God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or we make the comparison of an of a egg that has a hard shell. It's got that white part that doesn't have any flavor without salt, remember? And then we got the yolk in the middle that you save when you make ice cream. So uh, you got those three parts, but it's one egg. And so that's our simplification of God. And God's probably in heaven going, oh, <laughs> really? An egg? <laughs> you know, you understand that God has to dumb down things a lot for us, you know, because he created the universe. There's, there's a disconnect there. And it's extraordinary that he cares about us at all with our egg analogies. But anyway, he puts in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit here. If you're born again, you will have the Holy Spirit. And he says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So if you belong to Christ, you will have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in your life. Let me, let me tell you, first of all, when we think about the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit is not. The Holy Spirit is not a ghost. We call him the Holy Ghost. Do you know where that came from? That came from King James Version. Now, it's not a problem with King James. It's a problem of time. King James was published in, can anybody tell me what year King James was published? Six, a long time ago. Six, a long time ago. Thank you for that uh, extraordinarily general <laughs> statement. Yeah. Well, good luck in college. Um, <laughs> somebody said it right over here. It was 1611 when uh, King James was published. And uh, the word ghost meant a little bit different than it does today. That's because we know of the term ghost, which is a disembodied human, from, mostly from Scooby-Doo, and shows just like it. In Scooby-Doo, it's, it's the same episode every single week, and there's a ghost in it. Remember, the ghost is always there, and Thelma, who's supposed to be the smart one, loses her glasses and almost runs into the ghost trying to find her glasses. And in the end, they manage to corner the ghost in an industrial-sized washing machine, and they pull its mask off, and it's a disgruntled landowner. 
But there's a ghost in just about every episode, and we see that in the movies and in TVs, and it has affected our language. We think of a ghost because there's haunted, as a disembodied person, there's haunted houses, and, and then there's shows, house hunters, uh, not house hunters, uh, ghost hunters. <laughs> and, and then we have ghosts. We love ghosts. We love talking about ghosts all the time. But that's a disembodied person. Well, the Holy Spirit is not disembodied, and that's not what it meant in 1611. It meant spirit. It was synonymous with the word spirit. Now, every translation other than King James actually uses the word spirit, Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is not disembodied, has never had a body, and never will have a body. That's why I know he's not disembodied. And so uh, that's, that's, not, that's what the Holy Spirit is not. It's not a ghost. It is the Spirit of the living God. Also, the Holy Spirit is our counselor and teacher. Jesus described this beautiful um, uh, description of, of the Holy Spirit to his disciples when he promised them that the Holy Spirit would be coming. This is John chapter 14, verse 26. The very day Jesus was about to be arrested, but he says, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Now, I, I know we think that this is some sort of galactic chatbot is the Holy Spirit, but that's not what the Holy Spirit is. It's not some sort of divine, heavenly, universal Google that we can just ask any question and he's mindless, it's an it. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's a being, a living being in you. But the function, one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to guide you. Do you understand what kind of an advantage that is to the other kids at school who don't have the Holy Spirit in their life? Now, I'm not talking about he's going to help you on the test. But, uh, but at work and in life, having the Holy Spirit guide us so that we know what to do and what direction to take in life Everybody else is just on their own. They're just guessing. We don't have to guess because we have the Holy Spirit, the counselor, to counsel us and teach us in everything in our life. And then next, the Holy Spirit, whatever the Holy Spirit is, which is, again, way beyond us, but I can tell you this, the Holy Spirit is powerful. We're talking about part of the Trinity the eternal spirit of God is the most powerful thing in this universe and beyond the universe. The most powerful thing before the universe and will be the most powerful thing after the universe. The Holy Spirit is powerful and lives in you and me through Christ. That is extraordinary to think. Romans chapter 15 verse 3 says it this way. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that, listen to this, you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I guarantee we live in a world that does not overflow with hope. Now, it overflows with things, but it's not hope. If you want to overflow with hope, that only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, the, the Holy Spirit is powerful. But the effectiveness of the Holy Spirit is up to us. Did you know that? You can ignore him. He's there. You can shut him out. He's still there. But you, you and I become masters 
skilled at ignoring the presence of the Holy Spirit because you're going to say things and do things every week that you don't frankly want the Holy Spirit there while you're doing it or while you're saying it. Cherry and I were out on the interstate this week and, and uh, oh my goodness, I've already apologized to the Lord a couple times for this, but there's a guy that we had a disagreement about whose space was where. And uh, then this guy, um, he wanted me to know that he had a horn on his car. And then I wanted him to know that I had a horn too. So we had a horn contest. And it may well be that the Holy Spirit was trying to tell me the same thing my wife tried to tell me, but I shut them both out. So we can shut out the Holy Spirit when we want to. Ephesians 5.18 says this. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. If you're going to be full of something, he says, instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, he's preaching to Christians here. He's talking to Christians, believer like, believers like you and I. It, we have the Holy Spirit in our life. He says, even then, I encourage you to be filled with the Holy Spirit so you can have the Holy Spirit, but not be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, before I sound like too Pentecostal here, it is true, because if we shut out the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's here but we're not really filled with, what does that mean? It means when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you allow the Holy Spirit to saturate every area of your life, your relationships, your thought life, your mouth and your tongue, everything that you say, think, and do is filled with the Holy Spirit. I love being around people like that. You know, if you end up saying stupid, they're so gracious <laughs> because they're filled with the Holy Spirit. My mother was that way wise and filled with the Holy Spirit. My wife is that way, wise and filled with the Holy Spirit. She says probably one-tenth the amount of words per week that I say and that most people say because she's cautious about what she says. And if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to start talking less and more carefully. The Holy Spirit is powerful. And to shut him out is like living without power. The story is told, in fact, it was told in the newspaper and on CBS News, I believe, of an elderly woman named Norina who lived in southern Florida. When a hurricane hit the area, her home was one of many that was severely damaged. According to news reports, Norina received an insurance settlement but, and, the, and the repair work actually began. However, when the money ran out, so did the contractor, leaving an unfinished home with no electricity. Norina lived in her dark, unfinished home without power for 15 years. She had no heat in her home when the winter chills settled over Southern California. She had no air conditioning when the mercury climbed in the 90s and the humidity was at 100%, which is typical in Florida. She did not have one hot shower in all those years. Without money to finish the repairs, Norina just got by with a small lamp and a single burner. Her neighbors did not seem to notice the absence of power in her home. 15 years. Acting on a tip one day, the mayor of the Miami-Dade area became involved. 
It only took a few hours of work by an electrical contractor to return power to Norena's house. CBS News reported that Norena planned to let the water get really hot and then take her first bubble bath in a decade and a half. It's hard to describe, she says, having the electricity to switch on, she told reporters. She said, it's overwhelming. So how many born-again Christians live their entire lives without knowing what it's like to have the power of the Holy Spirit within them? It's astonishing. I think some of us have had that power turned off for so long that we might not recognize it if it came back to us. The Holy Spirit is powerful if you're a believer in Christ. Third, if you're born again, again, this is not me. This is right out of the Word of God. And I know it may sound redundant. You've probably heard it before, probably from me. But if you're born again, you will forgive. If you're born again, you'll forgive. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. During the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says it this way, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins... Your father will not forgive your sins. The Bible makes it clear as Christians, we are in the forgiving business. Mark chapter 11, verse 25 says, And when you stand praying, this is Christ again speaking, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins. It may be the biggest sticking point in your life. There's someone you have not forgiven. If you're a believer in Christ, you will. You must. It's what Christians do. It's what distinguishes us from this dark world. Believers in Christ forgive. Corey Ten Boom and her family secretly housed Jews in their home before World War II. And I may have shared her story with you before in years past. I don't remember. But when they housed Jews, they hid them. Their illegal activity was discovered. And Corey and her sister, Bessie, were sent to the German death camp called Ravensbrück. There, Corey would watch many including her own sister, die. After the war ended, she wrote famously about her struggle as a believer to forgive, and this is her testimony about forgiving. She said this, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a thin, light-haired man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands, People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture, maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, she says. I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we, forget, when we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. 
The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him. Working his way forward against the others, one moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room where its harsh overhead lamps, the, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parched skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out, a fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, again, his hand comes out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. And then she quotes scripture. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed bitterness, listen to this, those who nursed bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. 
I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I, I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hand, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. You have to forgive or it will destroy you. And that brings me to the ultimate mark of every believer. If you're born again, you will love others. John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says this, just shortly before his arrest, the day of his arrest, says it to his disciples, but to all of us, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men know, will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. If Corey Tim Boom can love a Nazi guard that tortured her, you and I can love others too. Pray with me. Father, we, we first of, of all acknowledge our unworthiness before Christ. It is your mercy that saves us. Is through his blood. Your compassion on us. We don't deserve it. We're no, we're no better in the end than that Nazi guard. We think evil things. We want to do evil things to others. We are corrupt. We're not perfect. Far from it. And you know that but you loved us enough to send Jesus. And Father, if we call ourselves born again, we are people that have been transformed. We're people that will obey our Savior even when it's hard. We're people that have the presence of the Holy Spirit, your presence in our life and the power of the Holy Spirit flows through us. Uniquely in this world, no other people group, no other religion, no nothing, no one else has that except followers of Christ. We have your spirit to guide us and teach us and empower us when we need it. Thank you. And Father, we know as believers, you call us to love and command us to forgive. And that's so hard to do. There are people here in this place that have been terribly wronged by others. Maybe not as much as the Nazi guard, but still wrong nonetheless. I've been holding on to that grudge, to that anger, to that bitterness. Father, in the name of Jesus, 
today, would you release that? And may we, through your spirit, in the name of Jesus, allow you to do just that, to let it go. Your word says that you forgive our sins and separate them as far as the east is from the west and you remember them no more. Teach us to forget. Teach us to let it go. As you're praying, no one's looking around. Are you born again? If you are, you have surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That is, you obey Him, you do what He tells you to do as much and as often as you can. And when you mess up, you ask for forgiveness and you try again because you're under His Lordship. If you're a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you in power. Don't deny it. Don't renounce it. Don't ignore it. The Holy Spirit is there. Embrace it and allow Him to teach you and guide you and empower you. If you're born again, you will forgive even when it's impossible. Forgive anyway. Because God forgave you. And wherever you go and whoever you meet, you will love. If you don't do these things, then you're not a believer. But here's your chance. You can today surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. Again, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's not me telling you that. That's the Word of God. That's Romans 10, 9. You can be saved today if you'll confess and believe. I challenge you to come down and just say, Pastor, I confess. I believe. I want to be born again. And I'll pray with you. Could be God is calling you or your family to join with First Baptist Church. Or do you just want to come and kneel and pray? Here's your opportunity as the Spirit leaves. Would you stand? No one's looking around. All heads are bowed. All eyes are closed. And as you stand and as you pray right now, you come.